Hello, my name is Ran, and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, we interview inspiring movers, thinkers, and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. We speak with some of the best yoga, movement, and meditation teachers from Australia and all over the world. I hope you're having an absolutely wonderful day today. I am not too bad myself. I just got back from New Zealand yesterday. I was visiting family back in my hometown of New Plymouth and it was a great little break and um, I did some great yoga there in the wellness project in New Plymouth. It's a great little spot, really beautiful and flew in yesterday and so tired. (laughs) We have an excellent episode lined up for you today. This week's episode is a recorded conversation between myself, co-host Joe Stewart and Timothy McCall. Dr. Timothy McCall is a board certified physician specializing in internal medicine, a yoga therapist and the author of three books, Examining Your Doctor, A Patient's Guide to Avoiding Harmful Medical Care, Yoga is Medicine, the Yogic Prescription for Health and Healing, and his latest, Saving My Neck, A Doctor's East-West Journey Through Cancer. Timothy's book, Yoga is Medicine, is a book I reference a lot during my yoga teacher training, and it sits on my bookshelf, so I was really excited to get the chance to speak with him. And having been through my own journey with stomach cancer, I was really interested to hear his perspectives and how he drew on his medical knowledge as well as his extensive yoga background to find his way to recovery. And he talks about that in his latest book. It's a fascinating story and I'm so glad that we get to share it with you today. And as I mentioned, his story is covered in full in his latest book, so I really urge you to go out and buy yourself a copy right now. Maybe pause the podcast first. All right, that is more than enough from me. Let's get on to the conversation. All right, well, Tim, thank you so much for joining. Oh, is it Tim or Timothy? Oh, Timothy, sorry. I do prefer Timothy. No, yep. It's funny, I, I've, I've heard that in Australia that everyone always abbreviates every name. Right. So, so um, I do actually go by Timothy. I have since I was 16 years old, but my family is still figuring it out 40 years later, so... You know, I can't take it personally, but yeah, you, whatever. Okay, well, my apologies, Timothy. Uh, it's so good to have you here today. Would you like to tell us a little bit about your background and where you grew up? Sure. You can probably tell I'm from the States, and I was born in Chicago. I grew up in the city of Milwaukee, but my father was a university professor, and we spent all our summers in Vermont. Vermont is a state in the northeast of the country, and we were just about 30 miles from Canada. And I've now, in the past couple of years, moved back and now live full-time in, in Vermont. So um, what brought you to yoga? Well, that has more than one answer. <laughs> um, I thought I started yoga in 1995 when I happened to get talking with a woman at a party who told me that she was taking classes at this local yoga studio and she recommended it highly, and I decided to check it out. Unbeknownst to me, it was a studio of one of the most famous yoga teachers in the United States, a teacher by the name of Patricia Walden. And then also, as it turned out, Patricia, about once every eight years, starts out a new group of beginners and then brings them forward for all those years. And I happened to be there right at the right time for that as well. So it was one of those kind of magical things that happened, and and she's a wonderful teacher. But then there's another story, which was 20 years earlier, when I was 18 years old. I was, at that time, a 
tournament tennis player and I had just won a tournament in Milwaukee. You know, Joe, that this is in, in, in my new book. And this guy who at one time was the top tennis player in the state approached me and he said, would you be willing to feed me some balls so I can practice some of my strokes in exchange for free lessons? Well, he had just had his own teaching transformed by reading a book called The Inner Game of Tennis, which has also been called Zen Tennis. And it was only about five years or six years ago that I went back and reread that book because that book didn't just revolutionize my tennis game, which it did. It revolutionized my whole life. And I went back and I reread it and I was like, holy, I'm not going to say what I said. (laughs) I said, holy something, this is a yoga book. And it's all about studying your body and studying your mind and looking at your ego and separating your ego from your felt sense and using your breath to modulate the nervous system and tuning into awareness and creating habit patterns. And notice whether the habits that you're doing with fine detail to what you're actually doing are corresponding to the habit patterns that you want. And as I'm reading the book, I'm thinking, This is the same stuff I teach in my yoga as medicine workshops to this day. It's the same technology. He never used the word yoga once in the book. And I didn't know anything about yoga. And it never occurred to me. When I went back and reread it, I did notice the book is dedicated to Guhu Maharaji. Didn't like really like register that the first time I read it. So in fact, in terms of philosophy, in terms of self-study, in terms of psychological inquiry, my yoga practice started when I was 18 years old. And for the first 20 years, tennis strokes were my asana. But it was the same process. And I had all this stuff, like my head got in the way of winning matches. You know, we can go into psychology that if you want, but basically I'd be way up in a match and then I'd get tight, what tennis players call iron elbow. And I just, I couldn't make the shots that normally I could make. And I had a habit of, we sometimes call it wrestling defeat from the jaws of victory. But through self-study and through repatterning, I learned to overcome that as well. So anyway, so, so the process has been going on for a long time, however you want to count. So you mentioned your book, Yoga as Medicine. Yeah. And it's just struck me that your latest book, Saving My Neck, is also a book about yoga and medicine. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so of course, I practiced medicine for a little more than a dozen years. Uh, you know, after college, I took a year and traveled. And then I went to medical school for four years and did a residency for three years. And then for about another Uh, 10 years after residency, I practiced in the Boston area, but then gave it up and pursued yoga and yoga therapy and really kind of made the science of yoga and the therapeutic applications of yoga my kind of intellectual and professional interest for all those years. And then I get diagnosed with cancer a couple of years ago, two and a half years ago, and suddenly I'm going to be re-entering the world of medicine, this time as a patient. And you know, I went through my cancer treatment with no conception that I was going to be writing about it. And I didn't take notes on it the way a writer would. Mm-hmm. I just feel like I'm just trying to get through this, you know, and, and I know you know about this. Mm-hmm. And then when I got to the end of the process and I, I finished, it's almost exactly two years ago, I finished my treatments. Uh, so that would have been March 2017. And by that summer, I was like, 
I need to write about this because I learned so much along the way that I felt like I have to write about this. And so then I got into the process. And, and of course, it's fascinating because in writing my own story, I learned more about the story than I did the first time through it. And so it was actually quite instructive and helpful in helping me process it and, and move on from it. And, you know, it's funny because I have another whole skill set I brought to this game, which was not only had I practiced medicine, not only did I study holistic healing and do yoga therapy for 20 years, but I used to be a consumer healthcare activist. My first book was called Examining Your Doctor. Okay, and I basically taught people how to deconstruct the ideological biases and the influence of the insurance companies, the influence of the pharmaceutical companies, which are big problems in the U.S., I think less so here. But I helped readers see through that process to get health care that actually served them better than what they might have got just off the shelf. So I'm kind of a feisty patient. I mean, I'm polite, but I don't take any crap from anybody. And I don't just go along with stuff. because. So, for example, I was recommended to have pretty extensive surgery on my neck. So I had a cancer of my tonsil. It's related to the HPV uh, virus infection. And I had lymph nodes on the opposite side of my neck, three lymph nodes that were metastatic. So they wanted to do robotic surgery to take out the tonsil. And then they wanted to fillet open both sides of my neck and take out all the lymph nodes on both sides of the front of my neck. And so I started calling this a, uh, in, in a kind of an allusion to the breast cancer treatment, I started calling it a bilateral modified radical neckectomy. And I turned it down. I was like, no, because even though they were pushed it hard, I was like, there is no scientific evidence. This is going to increase my chance of surviving. And this is definitely going to increase my chance of side effects. And of course, those guys are clueless about Ayurveda and the notion that there are marma points in the neck. And one of the teachings of, of yoga, so marma points for people who don't know are probably the historical precursor to acupuncture points. And the teaching in Ayurveda is you cut them with, with a scalpel, you don't get normal healing. And of course, surgery was part of ancient Ayurveda. They were doing nose jobs 2,000 years ago in India not for cosmetic reasons, okay? They were doing them on soldiers who had their noses injured in battle. And they developed all these advanced surgical techniques, skin flaps and all these techniques that when Western scientists discovered this just in the last couple hundred years, they were floored because they were way more advanced than what was happening in Western medicine. And indeed, Shashruta, the famous author of one of the main Ayurvedic texts, from thousands of years ago, is now considered by Western medical doctors the father of plastic surgery, the Indian doctor Shashruta. So, you know, so one of the things that all Ayurvedic surgeons would have been aware of is you don't cut on a marma point. And there are stories of people who've had marma points cut and they wind up with very bad results. And sometimes systemic illness or not healing well from the surgery, all kinds of problems. And that wasn't even my concern. I was like, this is unnecessary. You guys have the technology, so you want to do it. But 
I don't think it's going to help. So I turned it down. So that's an example of my being this kind of, you know, I decided to go an integrative route. I wanted to take advantage of the best of scientific medicine and the best of holistic healing because I knew that the, you know, the scientific medicine gave me some tools that appeared to be more effective than just going a purely holistic route. But I also knew that Western medicine is systematically missing all kinds of tools for body, mind, and spirit that I knew would help me do better. There's actually a really beautiful quote in your book, if you don't mind me reading a quote from your book back to you. So, holistic medicine treats the body like an organic gardener who helps a plant by strengthening the soil. Seen this way, I'm fighting the invasive weed that is cancer by dousing it with toxic chemicals, while simultaneously using diet, stress reduction and herbs to nurture the soil of my body. And I really love this analogy. And we took a similar approach when Ryan got his diagnosis. We had a good friend who was a naturopath and she gave us a whole list of herbs and even dietary things like drinking green juice that his conventional medical team absolutely shot down and said like the green juice would interfere with the chemo. A lot of the herbs are metabolized through the liver, so that wouldn't work out. I'm wondering how your medical routine responded to your own holistic treatments And if maybe there were some you didn't mention to them. Right. So I started off by mentioning, and in fact, I had the advantage, you could call it a disadvantage too, I suppose. But in America, health insurance generally is, unless you have a very expensive private policy, is state by state. You got to have insurance for the state that you live in. And I had decided that I wanted to get treated at a particular place in the southeast of the United States. Now, I'm, I'm being vague because I decided to disguise the identities in, in the book. Because you talk quite a lot about the hospital and your team. I understand yeah, yeah, that yeah, you yeah. want to just, so, you know. So, so, right. So I got diagnosed in late November. And so it turned out I wasn't going to be able to start my health insurance in the new state until the first of the year. So I suddenly found myself with a month I didn't know what to do with. And I was like, let's go to India, get some Ayurveda, get myself balanced and centered and rested before I have to go through these heavy duty, big gun, you know, chemo, radiation, whatever it would turn out to be, which is what it did turn out to be. And so while I was there, I read an integrative oncology textbook cover to cover. And, you know, so I read about all herbs and which ones had scientific data. And I basically, you know, I didn't have advantage of being an herbalist myself or having extensive training, but I just took the principle of taking several things in small doses and combining them. All things that have been tested and found to be safe in cancer treatments, not to interfere with with Western medicines. And I'd really done my homework. You know, my strategy was, I'll do anything that seems like it has a reasonable chance of helping, as long as it's not gonna screw up the chemotherapy or screw up the radiation therapy. So I wasn't gonna push it so far that I was going to risk that. And and so, for example, I did not take antioxidant vitamins because some chemotherapy drugs work by causing oxidation in cancer cells. And so theoretically, antioxidant vitamins might interfere with the effectiveness of chemotherapy. That was the kind of chance I didn't want to take. But herbs don't do that. And so I just put together a thing of some medicinal mushrooms, basically food, but, you know, powdered medicinal mushrooms of various kinds, a couple of tonic herbs that are felt to be good for immune, one from Ayurveda, one from Chinese medicine, and a few other things I put together in a little cocktail. And, you know, it's interesting because there's really a sea change 
that's happening in medicine, where there's a new generation coming in who's more open to integrative stuff. But a lot of the old school and a lot of the big shots in medicine are still like not into that stuff at all. And so the junior varsity, the oncology fellow came in and I gave him a printed out sheet of this whole routine of herbs and other things that I was going to do. And he said, you know, every hand on this list looks good to me, but I'm just going to check with the pharmacist to make sure. He had one question, uh, something I hadn't yet started taking and I didn't end up taking it. And then what happened was... The oncologist, the real team, you know, the real authority, she comes in and she says, I don't want you taking any of this. And my philosophy was, you have just lost the right to be fully informed of what I'm doing because you're just saying this because you're ignorant. I did my homework. I was really careful. I wasn't choosing reckless things at all. And I know that some people just read some stuff on the internet. I know what she's probably used to, and I know why she's being careful. She's trying to protect me. I get it, but she was over her head, and I knew it, and I had done my homework, and I knew it. So I was just like, okay. So for example, then I decided I was going to fast during chemotherapy, which by the way, I was on cisplatin, which is a platinum-based chemotherapy drug which is, as they like to say in medicine, is emetogenic, which in, in English you might say pucogenic, okay? <laughs> and it's, it's one of the most nasty drugs. It's well-known. Cancer patients sometimes call it cisplatin, okay, instead of cisplatin. So I started fasting every two days before every chemotherapy infusion. I had no nausea and vomiting, nothing. But I didn't tell my doctors about it. I decided to not inform them. So I, I let them know some stuff. Mostly they were agnostic. My radiation oncologist, he was similarly ignorant, but he knew I knew what I was doing. And so he was more trusting. My oncologist, I think she's a, a good doctor and, and a caring clinician and all that things. But she was just old school, don't do anything that's going to interfere with this stuff. And so... I had to, that, that's part of the story of how I danced around these restrictions. And, you know, a lot of the advice they give is just stupid. You should eat this sugar-laden, processed crap just to keep your calorie count up so you don't lose weight because most people with oral cancers who get treated end up losing a lot of weight. I'm sure it's true for stomach cancer yeah. as well. Yeah, ice cream after every meal. Yeah, yeah, I was encouraged to have ice cream maybe three times a day. Yeah, and, and of course, you know, this is not mainstream accepted, but there's this very interesting theory, which is coming out of some hardcore scientists called the metabolic theory of cancer, which posits, and there's some strong evidence in support of this, that dysfunction in mitochondria is the cause of cancer. That what happens is that, and, and this, by the way, is the theory of a Nobel Prize winner from the 1940s named Otto Warburg, a German guy. And he insisted to his grave, even after the genetic theory of cancer came in, that he was going to be vindicated. And, and, and he didn't have the technology that we now have that's starting to give some of the support for his theory. So the idea in mainstream medicine is that genetic mutations cause cancer. The metabolic theory says, yeah, but the cause of the genetic mutations is the radical increase in reactive oxygen species, aka free radicals, within cancer cells 
caused by deranged mitochondria that cannot metabolize oxygen normally, which is normally an energy source, but instead have to rely on fermenting sugar for their energy source. And, and in fact, the test that's used to stage cancer, the PET scan, takes advantage of the fact that cancer cells take up sugar at about 10 times the rate of normal cells. And so insofar as this theory is true, and it's unproved, but it's there's some highly suggestive evidence that it's true, ice cream three times a day is going to be feeding the cancer at least as much as it's going to be feeding you. And, and for them, it's not empty calories. For them, it's like what they need to grow more vigorously. And, and part of the theory for why fasting reduces side effects is that our species evolved to be able to deal with periodic famine. Because there were times in the history of our ancestors where food was simply not available. In some cultures, every spring, when the tubers and the potatoes and other things ran out, then there was no food for a while. And our bodies actually learned to deal with that quite well and not be damaged by it. And it turns out there are certain advantages. And one of the advantages, which was a subject to another Nobel Prize just a few years ago, was for this thing called autophagy, which is that in fasting states, after you've been in them for a couple of days, what happens is the body normally devotes a tremendous amount of energy to digesting food. And when you're not digesting food, it takes that energy, and one of the things it does is it culls senescent, old, not-so-effective immune cells from the body and facilitates new immune stem cells that essentially kind of reboot the immune system. Okay, and so, and so there's a huge advantage in fasting. So when you fast, cancer cells are taxed. They don't have their normal nutrition. It makes them, and, and this has been shown in animal studies only, but very compelling data from animals, that chemotherapy and radiation therapy are more effective when you're fasting, when you get it, and they have less side effects because normal cells kind of shut down to emergency mode, which makes them less susceptible to the damage from the cancer treatments. Cancer cells become more sensitive to the radiation and chemotherapy. So it's, it's, it's a double advantage for the patient when you fast. In fact, in some of the mouse studies that were done, doses of chemotherapy that killed the mice who were eating normal diets were tolerated in the mice who were fasting. And that's completely consistent with this idea that because they can't metabolize oxygen for energy, they have to ferment sugars. When you deprive them of sugars, when you lower the glucose levels, when you lower the insulin levels, when you lower the amounts of a hormone called uh, IGF-1 insulin-related uh, growth factor, you potentially are harming the cancer, making it more vulnerable to treatment. So, you know, anyway... So yeah, the, the standard advice they give is probably going to turn out to be very bad, probably counterproductive. Unproved at this time. But the other thing is that, I mean, ice cream isn't really got that much nutrition, really. It's just kind of like sugar. And okay, yeah, it's got some butter fat. So it's got you know some utility, you know, but maybe a downside too. But, you know, that's another whole, whole issue. Hello, Ron here, just popping in to ask you a quick favor. 
Now, one of the main ways a podcast gets shared is through word of mouth. And we all know that you'd love to let the whole world know about our podcast, right? Well, I'll make it really easy for you. The next time you're sitting down with your friends for a soy chai latte after a great yoga class, why don't you turn to your friends and say, Hey guys, have you heard of the Flow Artist Podcast? They are amazing. Ran, well, he's a little bit pushy, but Joe asked some really intelligent and insightful questions backed by her years of experience teaching yoga and Pilates, and they have some really interesting and inspiring guests on fascinating and important topics. The shows are always fun, the conversation flowing, and you can subscribe to them via iTunes, Spotify, or any good podcast app. Now, if your friends are tired of hearing you endlessly talk about us, I have an even better idea. Your reviews on iTunes or shares on social media always help. And it would really help us reach a wider audience, so please do. Joe and I would really, really appreciate it. Alright, that's enough of me spruiking the podcast. Let's get back to the conversation. So it's interesting to wind back a little bit how as you were going through all of your treatment and everything, you never considered that it was going to become a book because as I was reading your book, your approach to tackling your illness seemed like somewhat of a research project. And I was wondering if getting into that headspace of treating this as an exploration and as a project helped you manage emotionally and helped you stay engaged and involved and proactive because there are a lot of studies that show the more passive a receiver you are of treatment the less empowered you feel as a person you know i suppose all that is true all i can tell you is i felt compelled to do that i felt like i had this month before i was going to start treatment i just scooped up every piece of information i could now, I did have, and I, I, you may recall a story from early in Saving My Neck where I, where I talk about right after I get down there, just about to meet my radiation oncologist, oncologist, or I actually just met them the day before, settling into my yoga practice, I end up having this huge fear and a kind of terror come up. And it kind of occurred to me that, oh, I think I got so involved in the project of figuring it all out, very male behavior, going to figure this all out and tackle this and you know make all the appropriate decisions that I probably hadn't dealt with all the emotional stuff. I hadn't really, I mean, I definitely initially when I first got diagnosed, I went through a lot of the fearful stuff and it turned out the cancer I had had a better prognosis than I initially thought. And, and so I kind of definitely went through a dark period there for a while where I really thought, like, I got metastatic cancer. This is, like, bad news, you know. But then I just very much got into this mode where I dealt with it all. And then at that moment where I had that big emotional reaction and as I thought about it, I was like, yeah, I probably hadn't dealt with <laughs> the emotions that were natural in that situation. But, you know, go into yoga, go into meditation and lo and behold, it bubbles up to the surface, and then I just dealt with it when it happened. And I, you know, it was, it was this thing where I was doing a long asana practice, actually, and all these fearful emotions came up. And I, and I teach this to students all the time: when emotions arise in the practice, try to make 
the physical sensation of the emotions, your meditative practice. Try to go through that. The same way you would study an itch on your nose when you're meditating and trying not to scratch it, the way you would kind of watch it wax and wane and change, and you realize that emotions are not fixed things. There are these things that come in waves, and and then if you study them, if you meditate on them, so to speak, that they eventually pass. Now, this is a big one. Usually, I find that works in a couple of minutes and emotion passes. This was hours. And it was uh, on some level excruciating to pay attention all that time. But I did. And it's like they passed. And I really didn't have a lot of fear and and, and other stuff that, that came up. Now, there are other instances where other emotions came up at different times related to different things. But, you know, I, I use that same yogic or, you know, Buddhist, same technology of just making the physical sensation, the emotion, the meditative focus and, and trying to be with it and noticing when you get hijacked into the story you tell yourself about the emotion because the story is a sanskara. It's a habit pattern. And the more you repeat the story in your mind, the deeper the habit pattern gets. The more you get away from the story and back to the physical sensation, the more you have a chance of actually really feeling it fully and then letting it have its natural course and then pass. And, and, and that's, that, that's what happened. But yeah, you know, I think that all kinds of emotions are going to come up in, in, in experience. And, I, and, I, and I, de- I definitely had that thing, had that experience, and I tried, to, I tried to welcome them. You know, we have a culture that teaches us we should try to make bad emotions go away as soon as possible. You know, you feel sad, you know, your friend will come take you to the movies or get you stoned or something else so you don't have to feel that bad feeling you're feeling. And Yoga says, no. As long as you're not like suicidally depressed and you like really do need to go to the movies, if you have the wherewithal, stay with it, be there with it, let it pass through and and maybe learn what that emotion's trying to teach you. Because often there's a lesson in the emotion. You know, we get depressed. If we're in a toxic relationship, we're supposed to get depressed. It's like survival skill. We, we have this idea that emotions are bad. You know, yogi is not supposed to be angry. Baloney. Anger is a normal human emotion. Throwing a plate when you're angry is not skillful use of anger. But anger is just an emotion, just like sadness, just like shame, just like fear, to be felt and studied and maybe learn from and then hopefully to pass through it and and get back to get back to life and there's definitely a perception in literature around cancer and just in memes around it where it's all about staying strong and staying positive and it just sets up this really unhelpful and unrealistic dichotomy when you're going through something super intense and now you have the pressure to stay positive as well. Or to pretend you're positive. Exactly. You know, and by the way, this is something that people who have depression do all the time. They make like they're okay because they don't want to be a burden on everyone else. When actually, when they say they're fine, they're not fine. They're just not telling you because they don't want to bother you. They don't, they don't want to deal with it, you know, but they're, but they're not fine. And hopefully, if you know someone well enough, you know, when they say I'm fine, you say, okay, now please tell me the truth. <laughs> What's going on? Because, you know, a good friend will feel it. So this is a winding back a little bit to before sitting 
with your emotions when you were in project mode. Yeah. And one passage that I loved reading about was when you were sitting in the hot tub, neck deep (laughs) in the hot tub water, because there is some literature that says that cancer cells are susceptible to heat and also chanting. Would you like to take us through the, the thought process? Well, so again, my philosophy was anything that might help as long as it's not going to be dangerous in any way. So my brother is a professor of medicine at a kind of a big medical school, big famous medical school in the States. So I arranged to live at his house and his and his wife's house. They're empty nesters. They had a spare bedroom I could stay in. And the cancer center was only a couple of miles from where, where they were. And so it just made a lot of sense. And it was, you know, world-class quality and, and so it just seemed like a good place to be. So, you know, he, my brother has this enormous hot tub in his backyard. And I had been reading, you know, so in, in my research, I didn't just read the medical literature. I read crazy fringe stuff. You know, I mean, I read stuff that cancer doesn't kill you. It's only cancer treatments that kill you. Now, certainly cancer treatments kill some people. But you know what? Cancer also kills people, and that's just baloney. Okay, I'm being polite. But I, I wanted to read fringe stuff. I wanted to read, and I read like hardcore chemotherapists, memoirs, and patient. I, I read everything. I read blogs, everything. And so one of the treatments I learned about is, some, is hyperthermia. And now this is done in various ways, but one of the ways they're doing it is actually, I think they stick some kind of small electrodes into the tumors and they heat the the tumor up to a certain temperature and it's felt to be benign and it's felt to have some kind of synergistic benefit along with radiation therapy and other treatments. Now, I didn't have that kind of access to that, but my brother's got this hot tub in his backyard. They keep it so hot that you can't just like jump in it. You got to like make your way in slowly because it's just, you got to get your body acclimate to it. So, so I started doing it and I started thinking, well, you know, my nodes are right near the surface of my neck. And I, and I thought, well, if I can get my body so that, but the thing is that your body's so buoyant in the water that you float up. So my nephew had these 10 pound barbells in his bedroom. I was staying in his bedroom. He's long since married and off out of the house. And so I, I held, I like sat in like cross-legged yoga position and I had a barbell in either hand that, that kept my neck, my chin right at the top of the water bubble. And I, and I started staying a half an hour at a time. Now I took my temperature and I don't, I don't know it in uh, centigrade, but normal body temperature 37 for you guys 98.6 in fahrenheit and then i got my temperature up to 102.9 with uh, staying in the hot tub so definitely you know systemically getting it up and, and maybe even more right on those lymph nodes and so i thought well maybe that's going to help and then you know one of the principles of tantra is this idea of combining different tools and and so i thought well here i am in the hot tub one of the teachings of yoga is that chanting has strong vibratory effects that you can direct the vibration to different areas of the body and chants at different you know, sounds at different 
volumes and different pitches will resonate in different tissues of the body. And you can use those factors to direct, the, along with your awareness, to direct the vibrations, the literal sound vibrations, wherever you want in your body. And then there are certain chants in yoga, like the Gaitri Mantra and the Mahamrtanjaya Mantra, which are felt to have healing benefits. And then another teaching in yoga is that when you chant in water, that it potentiates the effects of the chants, that it makes them much more powerful. That's one of the ancient teachings. Now, as I wrote in the book, I'm pretty sure they had the Ganges in mind and not a hot tub, <laughs> but, but I'm figuring, what the heck? You know, here I am sitting in this hot tub, and so I just started chanting these mantras in the hot tub. And the thing is, when you chant in water, you actually feel the vibrations in your body much more strongly than when you chant on dry land. So, you know, I'm doing an unproved thing with the hot tub. I'm doing an unproved thing with chanting, and I'm combining them, but it's very relaxing. It softens my muscles. It feels good, and, uh, and I don't think it's doing me any harm, at, at least once I started drinking enough water before I got in because I got dehydrated the first couple times I did it because I stayed so long. But once I got that sorted out, I felt, I felt like it's safe. And if it turns out that cancer cells truly are more sensitive to the effects of heat than normal cells, and if it's true that chanting these chants has therapeutic benefit, and if it's true that chanting in water potentiates the chants, if any of those are true, then I might get some benefit. And it's not doing any harm, and I kind of like it, and so I did it. And so that was my philosophy. You know, it's, it's, it's like, I'm not going to wait for the data to all come in. Because maybe, what if they have a study that, you know, that comes out in 10 years that says that chanting helps, you know, lower or improve cancer healing rates? They're probably not going to do the study, but assuming they did, and they found it was, was I supposed to like wait until the data's in? You know, we have this idea. And no one's funding that study. No, no one's, fun, no one's funding, money no one's that. funding that study because no one's going to financially benefit from it. And who's going to pay for a study of fasting? Who benefits when, when you fast? Only you, because you're eating less food. You're not consuming any drugs. It's like no one's paying for a study. You know, maybe some government someplace, but pretty much this stuff isn't getting studied. It might be of benefit. I mean, certainly, I have no doubt the fasting helped me. I mean, my doctors were amazed that I sailed through the first day of my chemotherapy. I mean, they had given me these lectures on anticipatory nausea and vomiting. That's when the vomiting is so bad with the first round of chemotherapy that people start vomiting hours before the next infusion of chemotherapy in anticipation. It becomes this like conditioned response, and it's debilitating. I'd had two or three separate lectures on this by my, by my oncologist and the nurse manager who was assigned to my case. And I didn't have any nausea and vomiting at all. And I also think it probably made the treatments more effective. Am I convinced that the hot tub and the hyperthermia and the chanting had a benefit? No. Would I rule it out? Also no. And the thing is, what's never studied in Western medical studies is the potential synergy between things. Because reductionist science needs to isolate one variable and study just what happens when you change the one variable. That's the way modern science works, and it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant methodology, but it's limited in that it doesn't notice interconnections and synergies. And what if chanting by itself wouldn't be shown to be valuable in a study? But what if chanting 
on top of meditation, on top of asana practice, on top of chemotherapy, on top of fasting, what if in that instance it does add some incremental benefit? Well, that study is never going to be done, no matter who, just because we don't study things that way. We don't study multiple things and how they work. And in, do, in fact, doctors don't like that kind of study because then you can't isolate which are the parts that are effective and which ones are not. But if in fact something isn't effective in isolation, but is effective in combination, those effects are systematically never examined or found. With your background, you're pretty uniquely placed to be able to research different treatments and really analyze them. What advice do you have for the rest of us, for people who don't have that background? Because looking online, there are so many really predatory people who just Mm -hmm. want to sell shonky remedies to people who are in a desperate phase of their life. And there's also well-meaning people who have advice that is not going to be helpful for everyone. I did have the advantage not only of being a physician, not only of having spent 25 years studying holistic healing, but of also being connected in those worlds, being able to pick up the phone or email a friend who's one of the stories I tell in the book is I have a friend who's trained in Chinese medicine. And when I started to get a lot of side effects from the radiation and chemotherapy, we ended up setting up a video conference and we spent like an hour, hour and a half on the phone. And just and she went through options. She ended up recommending some Chinese herbs and a, and a Chinese medical salve, which I ended up using for a while. And when I was trying to avoid fibrosis of the neck, which is a potentially debilitating after effect of the treatments, which nobody mentioned to me, I, I only uncovered it in my research, she recommended I start using castor oil packs. But the point is, yeah, for, for someone who doesn't have this training, I think it can be overwhelming. And I think If you can, you need to get help. And I think whether it's an integrative physician or somebody else who's ideally, I think, someone who can put a foot in both worlds. Now, my particular bias, and I talk about this a great deal in the book, and I'll just go to it briefly here. I think we've got a misconception about healthcare. We've been taught to divide the world into conventional, you know, medical modern medicine, scientific medicine, whatever you want to call it in one hand, and alternative medicine, complementary medicine on the other hand. I think it's a false distinction, not philosophically defensible. It's arbitrary which category many things get put in. The real difference in healthcare is between holistic remedies and approaches and reductionist ones. So drugs and surgery and other things are reductionist measures. These can be extremely effective, but reductionist measures tend to have more side effects. They tend to cost more money. And often there's someone profiting from their use. And so there's a lot of marketing. And sometimes that marketing is subterranean. You don't even know the information you're getting, you're reading in the magazine or the on the internet about the drug is influenced by the drug company, but it is. Well, unfortunately, because of this false distinction into alternative and conventional, a lot of stuff in alternative medicine is what I call alternative reductionism. It's basically high doses of specific chemicals, often in pill form, sometimes even infused intravenously, that are used 
trying to create a specific biochemical effect in the body. That's a reductionist mechanism of action. Okay, a holistic mechanism of action is it goes back to that quotation you read at the beginning, which is the idea of we're treating the soil to benefit the plant. And so we're doing things to strengthen the person, to detoxify the person, to give them better nutrition, to boost their immune function, all these things that are not disease-specific. They're not based on the Western medical diagnosis. And these various symptoms like yoga therapy and Ayurveda and Chinese medicine have diagnostic methods where they detect imbalances of various kinds. Three people could have the same diagnosis but have it for different energetic reasons as seen by these traditional systems. And their approach would not be to treat the diagnosis but to treat the energetic imbalance. And this is one reason, by the way, why... Almost all studies of holistic healing are going to underestimate their benefits because advocates of evidence-based medicine, which is the dominant ideology in healthcare these days, insist that you study things by disease. And so they don't allow the Ayurvedic doctor. They don't allow the Chinese medical healer. They don't allow the yoga therapist to detect the imbalance and then tailor the treatment to the imbalance, they're supposed to say, well, this person has low back pain, which yoga poses should we use? And part of what I teach in my yoga therapy workshops is that this is not how yoga therapy works. I mean, you know, it's like kind of a third-rate imitation of yoga therapy. What it is, is a holistic system turned into a reductionist disease-based tool, which is not what it's meant to be. And so the problem is when you're treating using these holistic systems, using these reductionist protocols based on Western medical diagnosis, some people are getting the wrong treatment as seen by the traditional system because they're being treated for probably the more common energetic imbalance, but it's not the one that they've got. And so it's the wrong treatment. And so, but that's the way that that right now conventional medicine, when they even study holistic healing methods, insists they be studied. And and part of the reason I wrote saving my neck is I want to blow up this idea because it's bankrupt, and I'm basically using science and not some kind of woo-woo analysis. I'm I'm showing why it's scientifically flawed to study holistic healing in this way and how it leads to mistakes and. Because of this false clumping of everything alternative into one category, you have all these beautiful ancient healing systems and all these dietary supplements and all these megadose vitamins, which sometimes can be helpful, but they're reductionist treatments. They have more side effects. They become less effective over time. They often have subterranean marketing. And if you don't understand that, if you think, oh, vitamins are in the same categories as yoga. I like yoga. I'm going to take vitamins. You know, in fact, there are studies, and I talk about one in the book, heavy cigarette smokers, who take vitamin E supplements have been shown to develop lung cancer at higher rates than people who don't take them. These are not benign, even though they've been put in the category that makes people think they're benign. So I think you're generally safe going with acupuncture, Chinese medicine, from someone who knows what they're doing.
off-the-shelf patent medicines that are made in China and other places where you're maybe not quite so sure of the quality, I think you need to be careful. You know, But if you know where to get your herbs and you have sources you trust and you have people who are advising you what you need based on their ability to read your energetic imbalances via pulse diagnosis and tongue diagnosis and interviews and the other methods they use, I think that stuff is safe. I think body work is generally safe. Yoga not just going to a random yoga class, but yoga therapy, which is someone who's trained to look at what imbalance you have. And you know, when I teach yoga therapy, I divide the holistic terrain into structure, nervous system, and breath, Ayurveda, psychology, and spirituality. And so I look for imbalances in any of those categories. And then based on the imbalances, I target yogic tools, lifestyle interventions, dietary interventions based on Ayurveda mostly to try to tackle the imbalances we see to bring the person into better balance with the idea that they'll do better with any condition will tend to get better when, when, as you say, you like an organic gardener, you make the soil stronger. And I remember you mentioning in the book that your Ayurvedic doctor in India initially didn't want to treat you because he said there was no evidence that Ayurveda will help cancer. We all know that there's 100 different schools of yoga. What many of us don't realize is there's 100 different schools of Ayurveda too. And there's different gurus and different systems. And, and the, stu- the system in Kerala is different than the North Indian stuff that's in almost all the books that make it to the West. And so generally... My Ayurvedic doctor, who, who died a couple of years ago, didn't take any patients who didn't have something he knew he could help them with. And so metastatic cancer is something that he's not convinced he can, he can help. Now, because I'd been a student for many years, they made an exception for me. But generally, no, they don't treat it. But one of the things I said to, so Krishna is my, is my buddy who was, was my doctor, Chandakudivadyar's main assistant for many years. And I told him, Krishna, I'm not looking to Ayurveda to cure my cancer. I just want to balance me and strengthen me and get me ready for what's coming. And then after I had all the toxic chemicals and, and, and the radiation therapy, then I went back and I actually spent three months just doing this super long, slow treatment just to try to bring me back into balance and, and, and really saving my neck starts in the month before I begin treatment when I go to India for treatment and it ends pretty much in, in, the, in the three months that I'm recovering from treatment and then, you know, kind of going back to all the stuff in between. Yeah, that's a really interesting part of the book, actually. That was my favorite part because I feel like about the first third was the acute phase. That was your treatment. That was how you navigated that. Right. But then the rest of the book was the rest of your life that led up to that point when you got this diagnosis. When you were writing it, did all of that stuff just pour out or was it a conscious exercise to be like, right, I am going to sit down and untangle this and see where it takes me? So I went to India with the files I would need if I decided to work on the book. Because I had the book before, I had a book idea and I started to work on it a little bit in the summer. And so this was the, you know, November when I went. So summer, you know, Northern Hemisphere being June, July, started working on the book. And then by November when I went there, I felt like if I ended up working on the book, I would work on it, but I had no expectation that I would, but just I was open to that possibility and was prepared for it if it happened. I brought some files and things that I would need if I was going to work on it. Now, normally, 
when I'm home writing, which between workshops I'm, I'm primarily a writer, I consider a thousand words a good day. If I write a thousand words in a day, I'm pretty happy. And what happened to me about four or five days after I got to India, it just started pouring out of me. And I wrote in a little more than three months, 250,000 words. So the final book is only about 100,000 words. So I just wrote and wrote and wrote. There's probably like another whole book on the cutting room floor that made me somehow have some kind of second life. I don't know. But but so yeah, no, it just poured out of me. And you know, the other thing that was so beautiful about it is that because I knew I was writing about it, because I'm now in these experiences that I figured out are going to be in the book, because like, I've known Krishna for like 10 years, but I started asking Krishna more questions and I started noticing things in more detail. And not only did I learn more and see more, but my friendship with Krishna deepened because I was just in such a different place of where I was really trying to take it in in kind of a writerly way and notice the details. And suddenly I wanted to know more about his childhood and how he got it and what it was like. And he told me all these stories that I hadn't known before and, and several of them made it into the book. And, and so, yeah, it was effortless. It really was, was effortless. And, and the thing is, I have a lot of friends who are writers and most of them hate writing. They like having written, but they hate writing. I love writing, and I, I have fun writing, and I really enjoy it. And I actually even have fun editing and going over stuff and like trying to make the language better and more musical or whatever I'm trying to do. I like have fun with that. It's like a puzzle and solving it. So it's it's you know it's kind of like a uh, you know a yoga pose. You come back to the same yoga pose day after day after day, and you find new things. I remember when I first started studying with Patricia, she said, I've done Trikonasana for 30 years. It's never the same pose twice. And I remember thinking, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, and now I get it. Do you think it was about integration for you as well? Like the time in Kerala after your treatment, right. that was your healing time physically and On all levels, on all levels, spiritual. I mean... There was a lot of stuff that just unfolded there, new insight that came. And, and you know, of course, when you're in a place where you're writing and I'm writing about my family, so there's, you know, one kind of epiphany about my brother that ends up happening toward the end of the book. It's kind of crucial to the story in a certain way. I think it was because I was writing the book and because I was thinking about our, our family and kind of the crazy dysfunctional Irish Catholic family that I came from, that I kind of like saw some stuff and went deeper. And that led to kind of an emotional breakthrough. And that in turn led to my initiating a difficult conversation with my brother that took us to a, our relationship to the best place it's ever been. So, and, and so I, had I not been writing that book, I'm not sure that that part of the story would have happened. But yeah, it was, it was, it was a physical recovery. It was energetic recovery. I've had those, you know, those who are listening who are familiar with Ayurveda. My vata, I'm pretty sure, started to be out of whack when I was still not even born yet, like as a fetus. 
Uh, my I know because my vo- my mother had a very difficult pregnancy and third trimester hemorrhaging and placenta previa and emergency surgery and all this other kind of stuff. And she was fearful. She was told if she started hemorrhaging, she had six minutes to make it to the hospital. They lived 14 minutes from the hospital. So it was kind of like a problem. So I think she was scared. So anyway, my Vata has been out of whack my whole life. And a dozen years after doing Ayurveda and hundreds of days of treatment in India and self-massages at home and trying to make my diet more and more, trying to bring my vata back in balance, it never came back into balance until about two weeks into my long stay in India. And then for the first time in my life, my vata came into balance. And it's now a year and a half, over a year, a year and a few months since I came into balance and it has stayed balanced the whole time, even with transcontinental flights and hectic teaching schedules and all this kind of stuff. And so had I not done all the stuff I tried to do to bring myself into better balance to treat the cancer, I'm not sure that my vata would be normal today the way it is. So, so there were benefits energetically, benefits psychologically, benefits in my family, uh, spiritual breakthroughs, greater understanding. And yeah, so it's one of these things. And, you know, it sounds so trite, you know, like cancer is the best thing that ever happened to me, you know, blah, blah, blah. But in some ways, it, it, it has actually really been a tremendous gift to my life. And all this stuff has come that I'm not sure would have otherwise come. I don't wish it on anybody, and I certainly wasn't thrilled about it when I first found out or when I first suspected it. You're never quite out of the woods, and, and I'm, I'm aware of all that. But, you know, I, I, I feel great, and I've, I've got myself in balance, and, and that trip was, was, was a crucial part of it. I feel pretty much the same way. I don't think this podcast would be happening if it wasn't for my cancer. So, yeah. It's... Yeah, and you wouldn't be a yoga teacher. <laughs> I guess not. No, yeah. Wow, yeah. No, I mean, and, and this is, I think, the interesting point. The message in mainstream society is to do everything you can to get back to normal, to get back to your life, to get back to all the same crap that might have got you in trouble the first time. Like, get back to being able to do all that stuff again. That's the goal for people who have cancer. But what some of us do is use this as an opportunity to actually reevaluate everything and try to make improvements and try to change to not get back to where we were, but to get back to a better place than we were. And I think these are the people who really thrive who, you know, and again, no guarantees, not, not promising anything to anybody. But when you use it as an opportunity to grow and change and improve and study yourself and free yourself of the shit you don't need anymore. There, I finally did it. I finally saw it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's potentially transformational. And, and uh, so, so even, you know, and, and of course, this is one of the great lessons of yoga. Because we all get some bad stuff that happens to us. And can we take the challenges in our life and use them as an opportunity to craft something that's even better? So 
maybe to conclude things if you could distill everything that you've learned during your life and during this journey <laughs> down to one core thing i know it's a it's a big ask <laughs> big ask but if you could distill it all down to one single thing one single teaching what do you think that would be well i think this notion of sanskaras from from yoga this idea that we have habit patterns and you know it's a big problem in medicine because patients come in they're eating a bad diet they're not exercising. They're not wearing their seatbelt in the car. Whatever it is, they got these bad habits. They're smoking. They're drinking too much. Whatever it might be. And the doctor gives them advice. And a lot of times the patient wants to do what the doctor says. And, and of course, big joke in our society, New Year's resolutions. People have big ideas, but they can't stick to them. So yoga therapy is this technology of creating a new habit pattern and then repeating that over time. And the idea is, it's not making the old habit go away. It's creating a new habit pattern that when you do it enough, it starts to outcompete the old habit. That's the methodology. And so the self-study of yoga and yoga therapy is to notice when you have habit patterns that are not serving you in your life. You don't have to admit it to anyone else other than yourself, but you have to own it yourself. And then you can look at those habit patterns. So say it's smoking. And you can make pretty good guesses that if you're 30 years old and you're smoking, where you're going to be in 30 years if you keep that habit up. And you can make the decision, is that where I want to be in 30 years? Or you can make a decision to create a new pathway. Maybe it's starting a pranayama practice that raises your sensitivity to your breath, that, that makes you not want to smoke because you notice what happens when you smoke. And like, what happens if I start a daily, and you can start with one minute, and you can start with five minutes, and you, whatever. What happens if I start this pattern? And what if I keep this up for 30 years? Where am I going to be? And you don't have to worry about the 30 years part, by the way. You just got to worry about getting going. And then along the way, you can worry about the next month and the next week, you know, but, but you got to get going. So the point is, see your habit patterns, own your habit patterns. If you can tell they're not really serving you where you'd like to go in your life, finding a better habit pattern that will serve you. And then as Patanjali says, do it regularly without interruption and with enthusiasm over a long period of time. Sound familiar? <laughs> so so that that's really the secret. And the bonus is that the more you do practices like yoga that, that are one of the healthy habit patterns that can substitute, the more you wake up your felt sense, the more you wake up your ability to tell the consequences of what you're doing, the more you learn to listen to what your body tells you and as I was saying just a moment ago, that's what really helps you know what to do. Because your body has all this wisdom in it. And most of us are just on kind of autopilot and powering through. And we're drinking coffee so we can feel awake. And we're whatever else we're doing. And this is a different pattern. It's a pattern of cultivating your inner thermostat to know where you're at. And the interesting thing is, Part of the reason New Year's resolutions don't work is that fear, and this has been studied scientifically multiple times, fear is a crappy motivator. People don't change habits because it's better for them to get sick if they keep doing this. What turns out to be a powerful 
stimulus to change habits is noticing that when you do something, it makes you feel better. Or, you know, when you do something, it makes you feel worse. Those are both really powerful stimuli to change behavior, really strong impetus, whereas fear doesn't work. So go inside, find out what you need to do, and then use this technology of yoga, which, as I said, I got exposed to not through yoga, but through tennis. Okay, I used yogic, identify the habit patterns, pick the ones that don't serve you, whether that's your forehand or whether that's drinking too much. Okay, and then use this methodology to develop a new habit pattern that will serve you better. And then same way you get to Carnegie Hall. Practice, practice, practice. Well, thank you so much. Could probably listen to you talk for another hour or so, but we have to cut it short, unfortunately. So thank you so much. Thank you for, so much for joining us. Thank you. It was just a real, a real pleasure. You guys are great interviews, and I'm really happy we made this happen. And that was our conversation with Dr. Timothy McCall. He's a fascinating guy and he's a really inspiring guy. He's really been through a lot and came out through the other side. So to me personally, I find that really inspirational. And it was truly an honor to sit and learn from the guy who literally wrote the book on yoga as a medicine. Now, for our next episode, we have another great guest. His name is Tim Suter. Tim is a yoga teacher and a fireman who moved all the way from Canada to now live in the far north of New Zealand. It's a great conversation and as well as getting to know Tim, we learn about the stresses of working as a first responder and how yoga and meditation can help in this very intense line of work. It's a powerful conversation so I'm looking forward to sharing it with you and this episode will come out in two weeks time. Our theme song is Baby Robots by the incredibly wonderful Ghost Soul, and it's used with permission. You can buy his music from ghostsoul.bandcamp.com, and you should. All right, thank you so much for listening. Joe and I really appreciate you spending your time with us. Aroha nui, big, big love.